That's always been one of my favorite Christmas songs because to me it points us back to really one of the greatest promises of all of Scripture, Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, think about the significance of that promise. I mean, that, that's why we gather, that's why we're here, is this amazing, miraculous truth that the God of all things, the creator of all things, has come and dwelt among us in the person of Christ and has led us back to this right relationship with God, our creator. That through him, we have a way that we know we can follow. Through him, we have an option for peace, for grace, for mercy, for love. And it is all wrapped up in this promise that God is with us. That's what we're here to celebrate. And, and I trust that there are many of you in here today that need to be reminded of that promise. That for whatever reason, you've gone through seasons where God has felt distant, or maybe you've questioned uh, the purposes for your life, or all those different things that can emerge throughout the course of our lives that cause those questions. And it's just good to be able to sit in his presence amongst other believers and be reminded of that truth. God is with us. He does not leave you. He does not forsake you. He goes with you wherever you go. Emmanuel, God with us. And so let's just give a response of praise and gratitude for that truth and for that hope that we have in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer as we seek to open his word. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can come together and truly rejoice and declare that you are with us. To gaze upon the beauty of this manger scene and to think about this Advent season, the hope that we have in this newborn child that is brought here to reveal all that you are and to ultimately give his life so that we can be with you again. Father, for that, we are eternally forever grateful. And so may our hearts overwhelm with praise and gratitude today. May we rest comfort, comfortably in this promise, in this peace that you provide to us through Christ. As we seek to open your word now, God, I pray that it would enrich us, that it would stir us, that it would encourage us to once again see you for who you are and bring you the praise and joy that you so richly deserve. We ask that you guide us now according to your good, pleasing, and perfect will and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, it's December 15th. That means we are in the thick of Advent. Who here is worn out? Can I get an amen? Anybody else just tired? Uh, I was joking with some of the folks on staff yesterday that I thought, you know, maybe today instead of a sermon, we could all just take a nap, right? 30-minute, okay, 40-minute nap. You know, and I mean, it is the Sabbath. It's a good way for us to honor it and keep it holy. It would be very fulfilling, I feel, at this point, because I, I know I'm tired. Now, part of the reason I think we get tired during the season of Advent is because it's just this relentless pace, right? I mean, there's just this frenetic kind of nonstop activity that we find ourselves going through. Now, one of the things that can happen when we get so busy is it's very easy for us to find ourselves in situations where all of a sudden our patience can be very tested, Right? Because you have all these things you need to do, then all of a sudden you hit this unexpected delay or this, this cause that's going to make you stop and, and, and do something you didn't want to do, and it tests your patience. You guys had your patience tested lately? Um, I, I had this happen very uh, significantly to me just as recently as Thursday. I want to share with you this story that took place. Uh, I had to call my insurance company. All right, so that in and of itself, medical insurance, that in and of itself kind of gives you an idea of where this story is going. Now, a little bit of context. I've had this phone call before. I, I called them uh, concerning my son's surgery at the beginning of September, and we've had several phone calls. And the most recent one was probably October 30th. I remember it was right before Halloween, and we had these questions, we had these concerns, and we were told then, oh, don't worry, we're going to take care of it tomorrow. I'm like, great. So here I am on Thursday, December 12th, 
still not taken care of. So my patients had already been tested a little bit going into this phone call. And so here I am, I'm, call, I'm calling customer service. And I've, I've reached a point at this point in my life where I've decided in our society, customer service and that whole concept, that's an oxymoron at this point. Like that's not real, it, it's the opposite. It's more like customer disservice at this point. And, and what they do is they play a game with you and they test your patience, okay? And, and it's a, a pretty elaborate game. And it begins, it doesn't matter who you call, it could be, could be your insurance company, could be an airline, could be a cell phone bill, whatever it is, but you call customer service and they begin with the automated message, right? That's the first test of patience and they give you all these options for billing. Press one for this, press two. And you have all these different things. I, I'm so annoyed with that approach at this point that I just immediately try to bypass it and ask for a representative. But as soon as I do, they say, that we'd be happy to connect with you. If, please tell us what you're calling about for billing. Press one. And then just do it again. And I'm like, representative, you know? Finally, they get you connected with a human, which you think would be a good thing, but it's not. Now, I will say that if this is a common problem, right, something that's pretty standard, pretty, they'll solve it, right? They'll take care of it, not a big deal. But when it's when you really need them, right, when it's like an actual reason that you've been paying for insurance or that you have a real need for customer service, i.e., it's going to cost them money, this is when they start playing the game, right? This is when they get us into a game. And so here's how it typically starts. You finally talk to a human, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear of all this that you're going through. I, I really apologize for that. Please hold. And that's your new game, right? They're going to see. They're testing your patience. They're testing your resolve. How long will this person actually hold to see if we're actually going to fix it for them? So they put you on hold for a while. Then they come back, and you usually get an answer somewhere along the lines of, I'm so sorry again for this inconvenience. Unfortunately, I don't have any power or authority to, to resolve this, but I've notified the people that can, and we'll be happy to call you back as soon as we have more clarity on this information. Now, that's what they had told me in October. Okay, so on Thursday, I wasn't really interested in hearing that. So I, I explained that to him. I said, you know, you, you guys said that back on October 30th, and here it is. We're still dealing with this. So I would actually like to talk to somebody today that can actually do something about this. Oh, okay. Please hold. And we're holding again, right? And now the hold is a little bit longer because they realize you mean business. And after some time, they bring somebody else on the phone that apparently can do something, and you just get to replay the game all over again. You get to explain the situation. They listen. They go, oh, I'm so sorry to hear this. Please hold. And then they go and review and do something, and they come back, and I'm not kidding, she said the same thing to me. She said, you know, unfortunately, I don't have any power to do anything about this situation, but I've notified somebody that does. Now, y'all, at that point, I'm, I'm not going to, I lost my mind, okay? And I think that there is a chance, there is a chance that maybe she still heard the love of Jesus in my response, <laughs> but it was probably harder for her to discern at that point, because I said, listen, listen, I, that's what you were supposed, you're supposed to be the person that can do something about this. If, if you're not it, I want to talk to somebody right now. Well, I've just, they're, they're all on the phone. They're all in me. Okay, who is it? Give me a name. Well, I've just emailed them. Okay, what was the name of the person you just emailed? Well, it was Charles. Okay, can I get a last name? No, sir, we don't give out that information. <laughs> like, last names are no longer allowed to be shared anymore. I said, well, can you at least give me his phone number? No, sir, I'm sorry, we don't give out that information. I'm like, I don't understand how you do business. I'm not asking for a cell phone. I'm not asking for a cell phone, just a name and a number of the person I can call. And you go through an hour and a half, y'all, an hour and a half I go through this. Eventually, we get to some point where they make you think there's some form of resolution, uh, but not really. I mean, you get another name, you get a reference number, you get something, and, and they give you all these assurances. But I'll be honest, I hang up in frustration 
because I have no faith, no confidence that anything they've told me on this phone call is actually gonna take place, right? And so I leave frustrated. I have to go stress eat for like an hour and a half just to come back down from that phone call, okay? And so we have these situations where we question that sort of thing. Now compare that, te- that testing of patience with other things that we have that we have to be patient for, like Christmas, right? Now this is a totally different experience, right? Now you have to wait for Christmas. I mean, you get the the revealing of all the decor that comes out way before Thanksgiving, and you get all the pressure to start getting ready to celebrate. And I remember as a young kid having to wait for Christmas, and it just felt like it was taking forever, and all the patience that had to be applied with it. But I loved every minute of it. It was so awesome, right? Because you have all these things that you do to help with the waiting. You have advent calendars, you have Christmas parties, you have pageants, you have going to look at Christmas lights. And it's almost like, though you're anxious, you want it to slow down. You don't want it to go too quickly, right? And so what's the difference between the two? Well, obvious, the content, right? I'd always choose a Christmas party over calling customer service. That's always gonna be more enjoyable, but there's more to it than that that I wanna point out to us today. In the first example, you have a situation where you have no faith that what's been said to you is actually gonna be done. And when you have that, all of a sudden you have patience that's accompanied with worry, with doubt, with concern. And you go through those things and all of a sudden you find this frustration because you feel like your time is wasted, right? That it was pointless and and that adds to the frustration. Compare that to waiting for Christmas, right? Here's the beauty of what seasons do. They're very dependable. Christmas always shows up. You ever gone a year and Christmas failed to be there for you, right? It's dependable. You know it's going to happen and you know it's going to produce great results. And so yes, you have to wait, but you wait for it with confidence, you wait for it with joy, we wait for it because you have faith. It's going to arrive. This is life, isn't it? We go through these different seasons and in different sets of circumstances. And a lot of times when we find ourselves responding to those seasons out of frustration, out of anger or disappointment, it's because of a lack of faith. Right, a question about the reliability of what's gonna happen next. Can we really trust that this is going to be meaningful or purposeful? It's this waiting in life that's going through a season that's filled with doubt and concern and uncertainty. But when we have faith, when we trust that whatever season we're going through has meaning, has purpose, that it can be somehow attached to God's ultimate plan, then we can in many ways find the purpose behind it, find the meaning behind it, and enjoy it because we have faith. And that's what we're talking about today. What does it mean for us to go through these seasons of life with faith? And ultimately what we're gonna discover is that the ways in which we can be faithful are anchored in the fact that we see that he is faithful. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 33. We're gonna dive into this concept of faith today. And this is what we've been doing throughout the Advent season is taking Psalm 33 and looking at specific themes that help us kind of embrace the Advent season. When we looked uh, the first Sunday at those first three verses, we looked at the theme of joy and this invitation to praise. And then we moved in from that to last week to look at some of the attributes of God, some of the characteristics of God, and looked at this quality of love, the fact that the earth is filled with his unfailing love. Well, today we're gonna move into the next section of verses in Psalm 33 and look at this idea of faith, ultimately how we see God's faithfulness and how it can ultimately determine our ability to have faith as well. So I'm gonna read Uh, verses one through 11, but our focal verses today are actually six through 11. So when we get to six, pay extra attention there. Starting in verse one. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. 
It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Of his word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. So what we have here is this progression. right? You have this invitation to praise that you find in the first three verses, this invitation to joyfully sing to our God. Now, from there, after that invitation, the psalmist begins to explain why that's a justifiable response. And so last week, we looked at how this is a draw into God's character, right? That he loves righteousness. He loves justice. The earth is filled with his unfailing love. But we realize that the psalmist is not just drawing our attention to who God is, but what he has done. And so in verse 6, we start to look at other things that God has done. We, got, we get to see how he's involved himself in the course of human history, and that starts with a call back to creation. Right? You, you see the way that he says it, that the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. This has the undertones of Genesis 1, doesn't it? That, that story, that narrative where, where God speaks and it is brought into existence. God said, and it was good. And so the psalmist is bringing us back into the creation narrative, and he's doing so in a manner to help us put our trust in him. And so it's worthy, uh, it's worthy for us to ask the question, well, why, why is creation an ability for us to see the faithfulness of God? How has that proved to be a good example? And, and one of the things that I think it helps us see is that when we look at creation, we get to see God's control. We get to see his sovereignty. We get to see his might. And I think that's important when we're considering trust. I can relate to that in a very obscure way as a father. Um, one of the things that I find myself doing a lot of times with my kids is, in a very joking way, try to like kind of build myself up to my kids like I've got these really cool superpowers. Not, not really, but just like, let me give you a few examples. So like, let's say somebody's losing something. They've lost an, an item. Can't find keys, can't find blanket, whatever it is. When I find it and I present it to whoever lost it, I'm like, that's what daddies do. We find things, right? Like it's a superpower almost, right? Or, or we'll sit down and we'll watch American Ninja Warrior and we'll see somebody do something incredible up there on the show and I'm like, I could do that, you know? And they know I can't, but I like to just pretend like, yeah, that, that's what dads do, you know? Or, or maybe there are other uh, situations where like we'll be wrestling and I like to like let them kind of tackle me and get their way, but every once in a while I just remind them, right? Like I own you, you know what I mean? And I just, I can, I can hold you by one leg and toss you wherever I want. And, and I demonstrate this sort of control. Now, it's, and it's in a fun way, it's in a joking way, but when you do that well, and you do it lovingly, and you do it in a kind manner, ultimately what you're trying to communicate to your kids, or at least what I'm trying to, is you can trust me. Right? I'm here for you. Come to your dad. Right? And, and that's part of what is so great about creation, is that when we really gaze upon the control and the power and the sovereignty of who our God is and what it is that he has done, it is a cry out to humanity to say, you can trust me. And so here's what we have. We have this statement that 
He breathes with the breath of his mouth the starry host into existence. He gathers the sea into storehouses. Do you realize the significance of what's being said? So I started to explore this a little bit further. How, how big is the ocean? Let's think about that for a moment. Now, you're told at a young age that 70% of the Earth's surface is water, and so that's an easy way to remember. But I started thinking, well, no, but, but like how much water is that? And so I started researching it a little bit, and I found some information from the U.S. Geological Survey as well as NOAA's National Geophysical Data Center. And here's their estimate. They estimate that 321,003,271 cubic miles fill the ocean. Okay, so, so a cubic mile is if you had a cube that was a mile long on every side. There are 321 million of those for the ocean. All right, let me, let, me, let me break it down into a different number. If you were to take all the water and put it into a one-gallon milk carton, you know how many gallons we would have? We have the number? I don't even know how to say that. That's how many gallons, y'all. What it, what it, 352 bajillion is basically how I would say it, okay? Think, think about that. He gathers it in the storehouses. That's incredible. The starry host. I, I came across this article in NPR uh, that was tracking this study that I think was done by Hawaii University. I can't remember exactly which university but they wanted to estimate a comparison between the number of grains of sand on the beaches on Earth versus the number of stars in the sky, which was more. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing to do, right? Again, it's best estimates. And so they start with the sand and they get just a little sample of, of sand to where they can count the grains and they kind of measure its volume and then they kind of use that formula to guess how many square miles of beaches there are around the earth, and they came up with a number that, again, I can't really pronounce or put into numerical form, but it's seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains or something like that. And the article kind of takes you on this progression. They say, now, if you were to go out and leave the city lights and look up at the sky and, and see the stars, you could count in the neighborhood of around 7,000 that you could just see maybe with your, your own eye. It'd be hard to count them, obviously, but that's, that's probably what you could see. But when you use technology, when you use telescopes, it, it, it dwarfs the number of grains of sand. 70,000 million, million, million stars. Essentially what they said was there are multiple stars for every grain of sand on the earth. <laughs> That's incredible. And then, and then they take it a step further just to blow our minds. They say now as amazing as that is, as big of a number as that is in terms of number of stars, if you took 10 drops of water, just 10 drops of water, and counted the number of molecules in 10 drops of water, that's the number of stars. It's incredible. I love the, the closing quote. It said, we are surrounded by vastness, high and low, and either way, we can't handle the bigitude. I don't know if bigitude's a real word, but that's what they used. I thought it was great. Think about that, y'all. This, this is significant. God breathes the starry host into existence. He puts the sea in its storehouses. And so, yes, we should stand in awe of creation, but we should also see the level of his power, the level of his control, and have faith have trust. See, when we explore the concept of creation, part of the reason the psalmist is bringing this to our attention is not just so that we can have some sort of intellectual pursuit about the origins of life. That's not what he's really after. What he's, what he's after is to say, look, God is involved in creation. This is about his relationship with creation, with humanity, and now we see not just the magnificence with which he creates, 
but the plan that he's revealing. And that's another thing that the psalmist is referring to. You, you see that language, right, that he thwarts the plans of the nations and of other peoples, but his purposes continue throughout all generations. Part of what the psalmist is bringing into is God's plan. And what you see is that a lot of times God reveals his plan by demonstrating his authority over nature. Right? In fact, there's a specific example that the psalmist is calling us back to. Can, can you think of a time in the scripture where God thwarts the plans of kings and nations and gathers the sea into storehouse? Right? He's drawn us back to the Exodus. Right? In fact, there's some similar uh, language here that you find in the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. And so I, I want us to journey back to this Exodus story as a way for us to see God's faithfulness, right? How he demonstrates that he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. You, we don't have it for the screens. If you wanna follow along, I'm gonna be in Exodus 14 here in a second, just kind of recapping some of that. But before I do, let me just summarize the story for you and what leads up to this incredible portrayal of God's plan, right? So, so Joseph is sold into slavery, and that, that act leads Joseph into uh, Pharaoh's court, leads him into Egypt. Now, he, he grows in, in status with Pharaoh and ultimately becomes one of the chief officials so that when the famine comes through the land, Joseph is actually able to take care of his brothers, and he brings them to Egypt with him. And that's what brings the Israelites into Egypt. And initially, they lived there favorably because of Joseph's status with Pharaoh. But Joseph dies, Pharaoh dies, and, and many uh, years later, you have a new Pharaoh in Pyro who doesn't remember Joseph. And so now the Israelites have grown in power, and the Pharaoh looks down on them and sees a threat. He sees a concern. And so he decides to put them in bondage. He decides to put them in captivity. And so now you have the Israelites suffering in slavery at the hands of Pharaoh. Very harsh way of living, a harsh way of life. And so they begin to cry out to God for them to be set free. And so God finds this Moses, speaks to him in a miraculous way, and says, I've heard the cries of my people, and I'm going to do something about it. He's saying, I'm, I'm about to demonstrate my faithfulness to my people. So he sends Moses to Pharaoh, tells him to tell him to let the people go so they can worship him in the desert. And of course, Pharaoh refuses his heart, his heart. And so now we see these plagues, the first kind of example of God exuding and exemplifying his control and his power over creation through these plagues, whether it's, it's flies or frogs or turning water into blood, all this incredible stuff. But it's ultimately the passing over, right? It's ultimately the loss of life of every firstborn son that has Pharaoh finally relent. And he lets the people go. And so Moses is leading them up out of Egypt. And at the end of chapter 13, you get this really interesting insight to how God decides to orchestrate his plan. Right? He says, now, I could, I could take them the short way. I could take them the more direct way. But if I do that, they're going to have to pass Philistine country and face war. And I'm worried that if they face war, they're going to they're get afraid and they're going to run back to Egypt. So I'm going to take them the long way. I'm going to take them a different path than maybe what they would expect. And so they're literally kind of wandering on this, this unreasonable path when Pharaoh looks down and sees it and he changes his mind. He's like, what have we done? Why did we let them go? And he gathers his army, he gathers his chariots, and he takes this force of, of people with him, and they begin to pursue the Israelites. And that's where I want to pick up in verse 10 of chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? 
Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left, skipping down to the end of chapter 14, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Okay, several things I wanna highlight about this excerpt of the story that we just read. And then we're gonna call attention to, to a couple of uh, important things in that. The first is the wavering. Right, you see the reaction of God's people. Now think about that. Despite the fact that they just saw all these plagues, despite the fact that they had been crying out for their freedom, and they finally got to leave Egypt. When they saw the army of Pharaoh pursuing them, they cry out, what are you doing? Why have you brought me here? Why have you brought me here? Just so that I can die in the desert. Didn't I tell you to leave us alone? It would have been better for us to just serve the Egyptians than come out here and die in the desert. You have this doubt. You have this concern. You have this questioning. Now Moses gives them a response, right? He, he calls them back to see the faithfulness of God. He says, no, 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 don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. He gives us that assurance of God's faithfulness. And with that assurance, you then see God's sovereignty revealed in his power over creation, right? He, he divides the sea, he puts the pillar of cloud and fire to keep the army at bay. He, he moves it aside. And you see the sovereignty with which God exudes over creation to demonstrate and reveal his plan. And then you have this idea of patience. I love how many times it says all night long. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know if, if that minute took all night long for the waters to be pushed aside. Or I don't know if the waters were pushed aside almost instantaneously and it took all night long for them to traverse and walk across the sea. But think about the patience that's associated with this. All night long, they had to trust that, that Pharaoh's armies wouldn't be able to get to them. All night long, they had to trust that the water would stay exactly where it was going to be. They had to trust that God would be faithful. And that's the results that this this miracle ultimately produces, right? That's what we see in verse 3. When they see the mighty hand of the Lord, they fear God and they put their trust in him. They were faithful because he was faithful. It's an incredible story. 
Now, part of what I want to have us focus in on for a moment is this idea of patience, this idea of faith, especially when it's difficult. I mean, think about the patience that God's people were having to practice, not just in this moment, right? But for the years that they spent in captivity, crying out to God, crying out for God to come and set them free. Think about the patience that they had to practice and waiting for Moses and waiting for the plagues. Think about the patience that they had to practice in this particular moment where they watched the seas be divided. And all night long, over and over and over again, they have to practice this patience. And so the question is, how'd they do? Did they do it with trust and confidence? Did they enjoy this moment or was there frustration, was there doubt and concern and fear? And we see it in their wavering, don't we? I mean, think about this. After God had set them free, they cry out, God, why did you bring me here? And I wonder how many of us are in a season of life where that's the very same prayer we're praying. God, why did you bring me here? In this moment, in this season, why'd you bring me to this grief of having to bury a loved one? Why'd you bring me to this job, this this career that feels so unfulfilling? Is this really all my life is about? Why did you bring me here to a place where my marriage is struggling? Why did you bring me here to this heartache? Why did you bring me to this pain? Why am I here? And we question, and we have this wavering, and it creates frustration, and it creates confusion, and that's exactly what the psalmist is trying to speak to. Not to waver, but to be reminded of the God who breathes into existence the starry host and commands the sea to say, you don't need to be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. Just be still. That's what the psalmist is inviting us into in this moment. That's what he's leading us into is this element of faith. And so how do we do that? How do we live with such faith? And I think that ultimately is a verse or a story that gives us our answer, that wherever season you may find yourself right now, whatever season you may find yourself in right now, the first thing you need to remember is that the Lord will fight for you. Is that not the message of Advent? I mean, think about this. This amazing God, this creator God that has such sovereignty over all of creation, looked in on our pain, looked in on these difficult seasons and refused to leave us there but actually left the comforts of heaven and became word becoming flesh dwelling among us. And in that incarnation, the miracle of the divine clothing itself in immortality, we have this declaration throughout all history to say God has arrived to fight for you. That's the message of Advent. He has dressed himself in our brokenness, dressed himself and our mortality so that he could run to the front lines and fight for you. That's the hope that we have. Now think about that. Even the miracle of the incarnation requires patience, waiting, faith, trust that God's gonna do what he said he was gonna do. Think of all the different prophets that came before him, all the different messages that said, I will send a Messiah, I will send a savior. I will send a light shining on those walking in darkness and how long people had to wait. And then at Advent, what do we get? We get the declaration from the angels. We get the shepherds visiting. We get this announcement of this arrival of a newborn king. And what do they find? An infant. You have to wait. 
He's here, but you still have to wait. Like a line in a song we're going to have sung here in just a minute, God could have saved us in a second, but instead he sent a child. And so even the shepherds, even the wise men, even all those had to sit and watch and wait this child grow and learn and come of age until just the right time. It required faith. But rest assured, church, it was a declaration that the Lord will fight for you and has. And that's this amazing message of the gospel. That's the hope that I wanna make sure we all cling to during this Advent season, is that what God has done for us, this fight that he's fought for you and me is an incredible treasure that each and every one of us should hold tightly. It's a treasure that we should carry through every season of life. Now, there's no doubt that some of those seasons are gonna be hard, but when we carry this treasure, we are able to exalt not our own strength, but his. And that's how I want us to close, is by looking at this passage that, that Paul gives us on the other side of the cross that I believe we can practice so beautifully in our seasons of life here that shows us how we can remain faithful, remain faithful no matter what season we encounter. Again, you, you don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna read to you this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter four that I think says this so well. It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Here it is, church. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our lights and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So what season are you in? If you find yourself asking that question, God, why'd you bring me here? Why am I here? I want you to be reminded of this treasure that you have in your heart that can produce such faith. You find yourself, God, why did you bring me to this heartache? Why did you bring me to this pain? Why am I having to wait to have a child? Why is my marriage in shambles? Why did you bring me to this season? Why am I having to watch my own child struggle the way they're struggling? Why did you bring me here? I want you to be reminded that whatever it is that you're going through has meaning. Don't focus on what is seen. Don't look at the heartache, don't look at the pain, don't look at the questions, focus on what is unseen. 
Focus on what is eternal. Focus on the promises of God. Focus on our creator and all that it is that he offers to you. And be reminded that no matter what season you're going through, it is working something in you. It's achieving a glory within you that will far outweigh anything that you experience in this life to the point that you will look back on these seasons and you will see that it is light and momentary compared to the glory that God has in store. So fix your eyes not on what is seen but what is on unseen. Though outwardly we may waste away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Have faith. Trust. Understand that God is there to fight for you. You need only to be still. We can be faithful because he's been faithful to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask again, God, that you would allow us to rest comfortably in you. God, for any of us that are here today who are going through a season of life where perhaps we waver and we question and we wonder why you've brought us here, Father, let us focus on you and trust once again that you are mighty, you are good. And every trial, every circumstance, every season, God, when we entrust it to you, produces something within us, achieves something within us that leads us into the glory that you've designed for us. And so, God, help us to not focus on the things that can distract. Help us to not focus on the things that can lead us astray, but rather let us focus on that which is unseen. Let us focus on your word, your truth, your sovereignty. Let us trust in you. Let us be a people of faith. And let us demonstrate that faithfulness everywhere you lead in every season of life. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.